Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, the words we read in uh, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and reading again at verse uh, 19, Daniel 4, and verse 19, where we read, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. I've often shared with you that I'm a massive Johnny Cash fan. And it's not so much his uh, earlier material like Walk the Line, Ring of Fire, Folsom Prison Blues. Uh, I prefer his uh, later material that he did with uh, the American producer Rick Rubin. Uh, These were recordings that he made when he mourned the loss of his wife of many years, June, and as he faced his own decline in health and mortality. And one song that he recorded during those uh, final years of his life was the song, God's Gonna Cut You Down, where he sings, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the life of Daniel. And we're going to give consideration to this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And it's very blunt message. God's going to cut you down. Quite literally. God's going to cut you down. We're looking at these verses then under two headings. We're going to look at a second dream and then a solemn declaration. A second dream and a solemn declaration. First, a second dream. Look at verses 1 to 18. Here the author focuses on the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. We can start by looking at the decree, verses 1 to 3. We see the greeting that Nebuchadnezzar extends in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree or an edict to all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages that dwell in all the earth. And he expresses his wish that peace would be multiplied to them. And we can also see the God that Nebuchadnezzar exalts, verses 2 and 3. Nebuchadnezzar says that it seemed good to him to show his audience the signs and wonders that the Most High God had done for him. He says that this God's signs are great, says that this God's wonders are mighty, says that this God's kingdom is everlasting says that this God's dominion endures from generation to generation. We can move from the decree to the dream in verses 4 to 9. Nebuchadnezzar speaks about the dream that he received, verses 4 and 5. He claims that he was at ease in his home and prospering in his palace. Life was going well for Nebuchadnezzar. He is at the peak, the pinnacle of his power. And suddenly he had a dream that caused him to be afraid and alarmed. It's important to remember, as we saw a few weeks ago, that dreams in the ancient world were seen as being messages, tokens from the gods concerning the future. And this particular dream, this particular message from the gods, as it were, causes Nebuchadnezzar to be alarmed, causes him to be afraid. And Nebuchadnezzar goes on to speak about the interpretation that he requested, verses 6 to 9. He begins by making a request of the wise men of Babylon. He decrees that all the wise men of Babylon be brought to him. And once the magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers are standing before him, he tells them his dream. 
And upon hearing the dream, the wise men are left admitting that they're unable to make known its interpretation. It could even mean that they weren't just unable to make known the interpretation, but they were unwilling to make known the interpretation. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes a request of Daniel. Daniel comes forward once the wise men have had their opportunity. Nebuchadnezzar describes him as being given the name Belteshazzar and that the spirit of the holy gods was in him. And as Daniel stands before Nebuchadnezzar, the king acknowledges that he is the chief of the magicians since the spirit of the holy gods is in him and that no mystery is too difficult for him. And having said this, Nebuchadnezzar asks Daniel to tell him the vision of the dream that he saw and the interpretation. We move from the dream to the disclosure in verses 10 to 18. Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to recount the dream that he had, verses 10 to 17. He speaks about a tree. And he says that the tree was in the midst of the earth and its height was very great. He says that it grew, became strong, it reached to heaven so that it was visible to the whole earth. He says that it had beautiful leaves, provided abundant fruit so that there was food for all. And he says that it provided shelter for the beasts of the earth, the birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And having spoken about the tree, Nebuchadnezzar speaks about its destruction. A watcher, a holy one, an angel comes down from heaven, and the angel commands that the tree be chopped down, and its branches lopped off, and its fruit scattered. He commands that all the beasts and birds flee from it. And he commands that a stump remain in the tender grass and that the stump be bound with a band of bronze and iron. And then the image changes. The watcher shifts from speaking about a tree to speaking about a man. And he commands that this man be wet with the dew of heaven and that he eat with the beasts of the earth He commands that the mind of this man be changed so that he now has the mind of a beast. He commands that this continue for seven periods of time. And he commands that the sentence remain in effect until the living know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms. And that he gives kingdoms to whom he wills. And he sets over these kingdoms the lowliest of men. And after recounting his dream to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar repeats the request. Look at verse 18. He tells Daniel that this was the dream that he had seen. He tells Daniel to tell him its interpretation. He tells Daniel that all the wise men of his kingdom had been unable, unwilling to make known its interpretation. And he tells Daniel that he recognizes him to be one who is able to make known the interpretation Since, he repeats it again, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being shown the attention that God seeks. The attention that God seeks. That's what we see in Daniel 4. Do you remember how in Daniel chapters 2 and 3, we've seen how Nebuchadnezzar had been confronted with the God of heaven. 
He had been confronted with the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And not only was he confronted with this God, but he confessed this God. He confessed that this God was sovereign. He confessed that this God was supreme. But despite his notional understanding of this God, Nebuchadnezzar's heart had remained unchanged, unmoved, uncommitted, unconverted, unregenerate. Nebuchadnezzar knew about this God, but he didn't know this God. He basked in a false sense of security as he enjoyed success, as he enjoyed prosperity in his palace. He gave no thought, no regard to the God of heaven. He, he carried on with his life without thinking seriously about this God. And so God sends him another dream to rouse him and to grab hold of his attention. And that's important for us to reflect on. In his commentary on Daniel, Paul Tanner writes this. Despite all that he had, Nebuchadnezzar was a really poor man leading an empty life. He might not have realised it, but that was who he was and God knew it. God wanted him to have more. To know him, the true God, to experience his fellowship, to learn of his sovereign ways over all mankind. At certain times in our lives, God may have to take us through a lot to get our attention. We may not like what we experience at the time, but it might be the very best thing for us. The real goal of life is not being at ease and flourishing. Rather, the real goal of life is intimately knowing God. The British theologian J.I. Packer brings this out in his book, Knowing God. And he begins the book writing this. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignities over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I have known God and they haven't. The remark was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I had said but it stuck with me and set me thinking. Packer goes on to write, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. I am sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find ourselves uh, with a deep interest in theology. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into church history, study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around scripture. We may know as much about God as John Calvin and others knew, and yet at the same time, hardly know God at all. Packer goes on to write this. One can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. It depends on the sermons one hears, the books one reads, the company one keeps. In this analytical and technological age, there is no shortage of books on church bookstalls or sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tithe our money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be a happy Christian, how to get consecrated, how to lead people to Christ. Yet one can have all this and hardly know 
God at all. Friends, the goal of life isn't ease. It isn't flourishing. The goal of life isn't even knowing about God. The goal of life is knowing God. And sometimes God will have to shake a person up a bit to rouse them and grab their attention to this. Perhaps you can see ways today that that God stopped you in your tracks and really got hold of your attention. Maybe it was through a probing or provocative sermon that you heard preached. Maybe it was through a a hard-hitting conversation that you had with a friend. Maybe it was through a life-shattering phone call that you had from the doctor. Maybe it was through the illness or loss of a loved one. Maybe it was through a difficult time in school. Maybe it was through a difficult time at the workplace. Maybe like it was for Nebuchadnezzar, it was even through an unpleasant, uncomfortable dream. This morning, friends, we are being reminded that the God of heaven seeks the attention of men and women. And he doesn't want them to just know about him. He wants them to know him. And he'll do all that he can to get their attention. And I ask you today, friend, and I ask you as kindly and gently as I can, are you listening? Are you listening to him as he is trying to get your attention today? That if you've come here today knowing about him but not knowing him, Are you listening to the ways that he's trying to just wake you up and stop you in your tracks? Or even if you've been wandering from him for a season, are you listening to the ways that he's trying to get your attention and stop you in your tracks? A second dream. And then we have a solemn declaration. Look at verses 19 to 27, where the author focuses on the declaration that Nebuchadnezzar heard. The declaration that Nebuchadnezzar heard. Verse 19, we see the concern of Daniel. We can see the reaction of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar's dream at the beginning of verse 19. Upon hearing Nebuchadnezzar's words, Daniel's left dismayed for a while. Furthermore, his thoughts alarm him. Daniel is greatly disturbed by the dream that he has heard and the interpretation that he knows he must deliver to the king of Babylon. And and as he sees Daniel's reaction, Nebuchadnezzar makes a request. Look at verse 19 again. He can perceive that Daniel's troubled, that Daniel's in turmoil, that Daniel's touched. And he tells Daniel not to let the dream or its interpretation alarm him. Nebuchadnezzar is inviting Daniel to tell him everything. Tell him the unvarnished truth. To hold absolutely nothing back. And so we hear Daniel's response to the king's request. Look again at verse 19. He addresses Nebuchadnezzar as my lord. Daniel's highlighting that despite the difficult message he has to bring to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has his loyalty. Nebuchadnezzar has his allegiance and he says that his great wish is that the dream and its interpretation were for the king's enemies, for those who hate the king. There's no gloating in Daniel. 
There's no glee in Daniel. There's no you're getting what you deserve mindset in Daniel. Rather a genuine heartfelt concern for this man, this king, this Nebuchadnezzar. We move though from the concern of Daniel to the candor of Daniel. Verses 20 to 26. Daniel candidly speaks to the king about the blessings he had enjoyed. Verses 20 to 22. He speaks about that great tree that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream. And then he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. You're the tree. Nebuchadnezzar was someone who had grown and become strong. Nebuchadnezzar was someone whose greatness had grown and reached as high as heaven. Nebuchadnezzar was someone whose dominion extended to the ends of the earth. And then Daniel candidly speaks to the king about a coming judgment. Verses 23 to 25. He speaks about the watcher who had commanded that the great tree be cut down. And that the unnamed man live and eat with the beasts of the field. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar that the watcher's words are a decree from the Most High God. The Most High God has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar be driven from among men. The Most High God has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar make his dwelling among the beasts of the field. The Most High God has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar eat grass and be wet with the dew of heaven. The Most High God has decreed that this will be for seven periods of time. And the Most High God has decreed that this will continue, look at what it says in verse 25, until Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that it's the Most High God who rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he wills. And then Daniel candidly speaks to the king about future grace. Verse 26 He speaks now about the stump that was left behind. And he assures Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom will be confirmed to him. It will be restored to him the moment that he knows, the moment that he acknowledges, the moment that he recognizes the simple fact. Look again at verse 26 that heaven, not Nebuchadnezzar, heaven rules. Well, we move from the candor of Daniel to the counsel of Daniel, there in verse 27. Daniel tells the king what he ought to do. Tells Nebuchadnezzar to break off his sin by practicing righteousness. He tells Nebuchadnezzar to break off his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. An autocratic man. A man who frequently abused his position of power. And the people of Babylon, his subjects were struggling under his reign. And the countries that he had conquered, such as Judah, were struggling under his reign. And Daniel courageously counsels the king to repent. To change his current course of action. Daniel is calling the king to a new behavior and a new behavior that will come from a new belief. New activities that will stem from a new attitude and new allegiance to the God of heaven. And Daniel tells the king why he ought to do this. Look at the very end of verse 27. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that if he does this, there may perhaps be a lengthening of his prosperity. 
Daniel holds out the prospect that the king's ease, his flourishing, his prosperity, it might continue. He might avoid the judgment that he has been threatened with. But that will only be the case if he responds appropriately to Daniel's counsel. And the question that we're left with and that we're going to address next week, God willing, is will Nebuchadnezzar follow Daniel's counsel or will he remain in unbelief? Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being shown not just the attention that God seeks, but the announcement that God makes. The announcement that God makes. That's what we see in Daniel 4. Look at verse 27. Verse 17, sorry. Nebuchadnezzar says that he dreamt about a watcher who spoke about the living, knowing that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Now look at verse 25. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he will remain in his beast-like condition, stripped of his kingdom, until he recognizes that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Now look at verse 26. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that once he recognizes the rule of heaven, his kingdom will be restored. It will be confirmed to him. Daniel 4 is very much God's announcement that he is king of kings. That all kings, including Nebuchadnezzar, are subject and subordinate to him. And that's important for us to reflect on. As we move into the New Testament, we find Jesus being presented as the King of Kings. The one whom all kings are subordinate and subject to. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 28. I quote it often. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You remember what Paul says in Ephesians 1. That Jesus has been exalted above all rule, above all authority, above all power, above all dominion. Or you remember what Paul says in Philippians 2. That a day is coming when everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ to be Lord. Or you remember in Revelation chapter 19 how Jesus is depicted as being the mighty warrior who is given the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Every monarch who has ever sat and will ever sit in Buckingham Palace is subject and subordinate to King Jesus. Every prime minister who has ever sat and will ever sit in 10 Downing Street is subordinate and subject to King Jesus. And every president who has ever sat and will ever sit in the White House is subordinate and subject to King Jesus. There's a very famous conversation that took place in the 16th century between a Scottish preacher, Andrew Melville, and King James I of England, the sixth of Scotland. And Andrew Melville said this to King James. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. As well as King James, there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James VI is, and whose kingdom he is not a king, not a lord, not a head, but a member. This morning we're being reminded, friends, that the God of heaven announces his kingship over every president, 
every politician, every person. And the question is, are we listening? I'm I'm telling each and every one of you today that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm telling each and every one of you today that Jesus is King of Kings, that He is Lord of Lords. I am telling each of you today that everything and everyone is subordinate and subject to King Jesus. And I'm asking each and every one of you today, myself included, are we listening? But as we consider these verses, we're not just shown the attention that God seeks and not just the announcement that God makes, but finally the admonition that God issues. The admonition or warning that God issues. That's what we see here in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. A man who saw no need for God in his thinking, no need for God in his living. A man who said, I will be Lord. A man who said, I will be God. And he receives this dream. And he receives its interpretation to warn him that God's judgment is coming. To warn him that God is going to cut him down to size like a tree being chopped down. But he's also told, isn't he, that the judgment could be averted. The judgment could be avoided. The judgment could be prevented. But only if he repented. It was a very solemn admonition. A very solemn warning. But an admonition, a warning that was rooted and grounded in the kindness of God. And that's important for us to reflect on. I have a relative who's gluten-free. It's not Natalie, so don't look at Natalie. But I have a relative who's gluten-free. And whenever we go out for a meal, she analyzes the menu. Every feature, every facet of the menu. Pours over it almost with a microscope. And then she interrogates every waiter and waitress. She's desperately trying to find out if the meal contains any gluten. She needs that information and she needs that information for her own health. It would be no kindness to her if the menu didn't contain that information, that warning. It would be no kindness to her if the the staff, the waiters and waitresses didn't warn her about what might contain gluten. And in the same way, the God of heaven, friends, is full of kindness And he gives warning after warning to those who refuse to acknowledge and bow the knee to his kingship, his lordship. In fact, do you remember how in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus preaches the very last sermon that he delivers before his death. And and in that sermon, Jesus speaks passionately and forthrightly about heaven and about hell. And about judgment. And the reason why he says these things. Is because he was kind enough. He was loving enough. He was others focused enough. To provide clear. Categorical. Compelling. Captivating warnings. About the danger facing anyone and everyone. Who rejects his lordship. 
Jesus didn't preach about hell because he got a kick out of it. He didn't preach about hell because he was cruel, because he was sadistic. He didn't preach about hell because he thought it was the only kind of sermon that people might listen to. He preached about it because he was kind enough, loving enough to warn and admonish anyone and everyone about what will happen to those who continue to reject him. So this morning, we've been reminded that the God of heaven, he issues admonitions. He issues warnings. Uh, and the great question for each and every one of us is, are, are we listening? If, if, if we are Christians today, is this giving us the impetus to go out and reach our community with the gospel? And to pray for our loved ones and to pray for those who are in our community who are without Christ. And friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus, haven't yet bowed the knee to his lordship, this, this is the impetus for you. This is the warning for you to, to bow to him, to surrender to him, to give your allegiance to him before it's too late. Well, we'll see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar next week and how he responded. But let's close with our final singing the words of Psalm 2 that remind us of a God who is sovereign over kings and will deal with even kings who might reject him. Psalm 2 verses 4 to 12.